I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Nature Jobs podcast. I'm Julie Gould. In this month's episode, our focus is on researchers who successfully juggle scientific careers alongside disability or chronic illness and their advice to others who are facing similar situations. We speak to Julia Hubbard, who juggles her career as a senior research scientist and the mother of two with two chronic illnesses. One manager, I remember saying at the time, oh, my gosh, you know, this happened to a girl down our street and I thought you had such a brilliant career ahead of you. To sort of, like, put those in the same sentence. And then we also hear from postdoctoral research fellow Colin Dietrich, who talks about the impact of having dyslexia. But one thing that uh, I learned over the years is that if you have learning disabilities, you just have to put in more time than your peers. Colin Dietrich was first diagnosed with two learning disabilities when he was about six years old. An unspecified learning disorder and an unspecified reading disorder, both falling under the umbrella of dyslexia. The facets of my learning disabilities are like in twofold. One is my issues with reading. It's actually understanding the words on the on pages. And the other one is actually learning and remembering new facts and information. So it's really difficult for me to remember um, trivial uh, information, information that I can't um, build on. So like like information like uh, names are really difficult for me to remember um, because it's, you know, a name is just, there's nothing that like connects to a name as opposed to uh, a fact about like my research with tuberculosis. I can build on that. But he did not let this stand in his way. Colin is now a postdoctoral research fellow in HIV-TB co-infection immunology at the University of Pittsburgh in the US and a prominent speaker and advocate for students with learning disabilities. He wrote for the Nature Jobs blog in October last year about how we can help support those with learning disabilities. And David Payne, our chief careers editor, spoke to Colin to find out more about how his learning disabilities have impacted on his career in science. What impact did this kind of this label that you had of a learning disability have on you at that young age? I always knew that like I, I was bad at reading and I continue to be bad at reading. Um, 
but I think that the biggest issue though is that um, I was always afraid of looking stupid and that fear really drove me to study real hard because I was like obsessed with appearing to be smart and I think that my learning disability diagnosis really kind of hammered that in so as opposed to like I feel like at some point I had the choice to just kind of cower um, away from the diagnosis and say like all right well I'm done with school I don't want to I obviously can't do this or oh I have to prove to myself and other people or mostly it was to other people that I was smart enough to be doing whatever I was doing. That, but if we can fast forward now to when you are, um, you know, doing your sort of undergraduate and postgraduate qualifications, what practical support did you get um, during the course of that for your dyslexia? And so the accommodations that I was receiving in elementary school, I used in middle school, high school, in college and graduate school. And I'm actually still using them today in um, a few classes that I'm actually taking right now. And so... Um, the accommodations that I received across the board were extended time on tests, so I would get one and a half times um, uh, on examinations. I also uh, wouldn't fill out um, a Scantron test because I have an issue with um, filling it, like see, reading a multiple choice uh, uh, question and seeing that the answer is A and have difficulty being able to actually circle like the A in like the A bubble in a Scantron test, and so I would always circle on on individual tests. Another thing that I was allowed was a recording device in class, and so I would ask permission uh, for the professor or the teacher, and I would record my lectures. And I was pretty methodical when I was recording these lectures, um, but I would essentially write down the time because uh, I was using a digital recorder, had the time on it and I would write down the time for each slide that was being discussed. And then after every class, I would either like go home or like go to the library and uh, listen to that class and retake notes because I had a hard time. Uh, I had a hard time doing that when I was, um, uh, when I was in class because I have an issue with processing language. And so my note taking was always slower than um, I think like the average student. How many more hours a week do you think you've studied over the years compared to some of your peers? Um, it sounds like you know you're you're putting in an awful lot of hours here to you know because of your drive and your ambition to succeed, which is amazing. I honestly don't know how to quantify it, but one thing that uh, I learned over the years is that if you have learning disabilities and you're trying to you you just have to put in more time than your peers. And so um, I was pretty, uh, uh, I wanna say like robotic with my studying, especially in college. Like I would, um, I, I woke up and I studied, I went to breakfast, I studied, I was the guy at breakfast with my books. Um, I went to class, then I studied, I ran cross country in college. Um, and so then I would go to practice and then I would stop and I would study. And, I mean, studying was just what I did. But again, the majority of that was um, was done out of a fear of looking stupid. How often do you encounter other um, scientists um, that have a dyslexia diagnosis? When I was a graduate student, a new graduate student started. Um, it was rotating in the lab that I was uh, that I got my PhD in, and um, she was undiagnosed with learning disabilities. But when she was explaining how she was reading and 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 how um 
when, when she was explaining to me like how she learned new information and, and how she was reading, I really kind of like a light bulb went off and I was like, wait a minute, this kind of sounds like learning disabilities. And she ended up getting tested and was first diagnosed as a graduate student. And so that was, I think, my first time realizing this is before any articles that I wrote, before any of that. And this is the first time that I was like, oh, wow, there are other scientists with learning disabilities here. Um, and so that was kind of, it was nice to um, realize that I wasn't alone. So you spent time at the uh, University of Cape Town, and I'm just wondering whether, you know, you had a very different experience of your learning disability when you did leave the U.S. and go to a different country. Uh, yeah, so, um, uh, ho hold on one second. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, so one, um, one issue that I have with my learning disabilities is that I have a hard time uh, understanding uh, accents. And so it is, like, I just, I have a hard time even, like, listening to, to music because I've, I am, I find it difficult to differentiate uh, uh, tones or different tones. I know the tones are different, but it's difficult for me to actually understand why they're different. And so I think that I think that correlates to uh, different accents. And so one issue is is that you know there's a lot of different accents in um, uh, in South Africa. There's a bunch of different uh, languages, and my boss was uh, British and. And so there's uh, Afrikaans accents and um, and Kosa accents, and so I had a I had a hard time readjusting just my hearing and and trying to understand um, uh, interpret what people were were saying to me because I didn't I wasn't very comfortable asking people to continually repeat themselves, and so I think that that was one issue. Another thing is that. Um, uh, just a lot of, you know, just how the difference between like British English and uh, American English, there are just some small differences that were actually, uh, that I was not aware of at all. And so that was kind of hard um, uh, understanding uh, those differences because the, um, the uh, English in uh, South Africa was uh, fairly close to, to, to British English. And so that was actually pretty difficult. Um, I wasn't as open about my learning disabilities, at least initially when I was in uh, Cape Town, because I just wasn't sure how that was going to be perceived. Um, but eventually I got to the point where I was comfortable um, uh, talking about it. And I actually got to the point where um, I applied for uh, a fellowship there. And, um, you know, the fellowship was asking if there's, um, uh, was specifically asking if there were people from underrepresented individuals uh, in science. And here in the United States, um, underrepresented individuals includes people with disabilities. And so I contacted a few um, granting organizations about that. And I was like, I have no idea if this is, um, if people with disabilities is considered um, an underrepresented group and um, if you think that would, if you think that uh, would help this application, should I apply for that? And so I use that in um, uh, a few applications. And so I don't, I have no idea if that if that helped or, or hurt me or not. Um, but it, but that's one thing where I learned because like being abroad, where like I had to continually reach out and say like, um, okay, is this you know is this thing going to be helpful? Is this not going to be helpful? 
um, in this application or, or, or not. So there were a lot of really little things that I think were, were difficult uh, in Cape Town just in general um, that like compounded like or individually don't that doesn't sound that um, that doesn't sound that that bad or that difficult but you know every day having <laughs> feeling like I'm missing 10% of what people say uh, can have kind of a lasting effect. <laughs> thinking of your colleague there that that was undiagnosed or at the beginning of this journey what what advice would you give to them when they do come to you and say you know like you Colin I have a I have a learning disability or I have a dyslexia I think a few things one is that um, understanding that some things are just going to take them longer and I think one of the first things I would say is that um, is to try to find different assistive technologies that works well for them. And this would be just um, text-to-speech software because this is some uh, software that I've been using has been kind of a game changer for me. Um, in addition to that, also recording lectures, which I think is really important. But as you progress, as, as, as you know, as, as you progress out of your classroom work when you're a PhD student or um, when you're um, in, a, in a graduate program and you're just doing research, you know, you're not going to many lectures. And so um, that's why I think that text-to-speech software is so incredibly important. I think the other thing that's really important is not being afraid of failure because I think that failure is something that uh, we try so hard not to do. And so then that prevents us from um, attempting to do things that are going to be tough. And that's what I think um, stops a lot of people that have um, uh, that have learned disabilities to uh, even attempt to um, go into uh, a career that is academically rigorous. And then- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Another thing that I think is really important is um, understanding imposter complex or imposter syndrome, because I feel like that's something that students with learning disabilities that have overcome a lot of challenges and are in especially intellectually driven fields, and this is something that I deal with, is they feel like they don't belong. And um, I, wanna, I wanna emphasize with like all my heart that um, those feelings are normal and it is okay to have those feelings, but it's really important to kind of to uh, figure out ways to manage them. So Colin, you're, you're, you're back in the US now, you're, you're, you're doing another postdoc. Um, I suppose my, my question really is, what next for you? Are, you? are you planning on an academic career? And do you think about um, you know, how having a learning disability during the course of the next few years of your life, um, what effect that might have on you? Well, so like, I, I love being a scientist and um, it's definitely one of my big uh, passions in, in life. And, and I can see myself um, being a scientist for years. Um, and in academia. But I also think one thing that I've been noticing though is that over this last, these last few years or this last year especially with advocating and writing and being more open about my, my learning disabilities is that um, I've become pretty 
I've become like the most passionate about um, advocating for students with learning disabilities. And so um, I feel like my primary goal, however I can make it happen, which I still don't know, but if I can help increase the number of students with learning disabilities that are pursuing uh, STEM related fields, whether that is increasing the number of, or helping increase the number of, of, of students in, in science, or increasing, um, helping increase the number of, of PhD students that, um, uh, that have learning disabilities or disabilities in general. And so I, right now I'm in an interesting place in my career where I'm trying to balance these two things because I love, I love the science that I'm doing, but I also really love this um, advocacy and I'm trying to figure out the best way to mash these two together. And, um, and so I don't know, like it'll, it'll be interesting to see where I am in, in uh, five years from now. Um, I could still be doing this and also advocating uh, a lot, or I might be doing something um, uh, totally different. So it's, it's kind of, it's an exciting and also nerve wracking time. And as mentioned, he wrote for the Nature Jobs blog. So please do go to the blog to read more about Colin's work on supporting those with dyslexia. As we've just heard from Colin, when it comes to learning disabilities, a lot of adaptations need to be made. But this is also true for physical disabilities and chronic disease. Julia Hubbard was an NMR spectroscopist at a major pharmaceutical company when she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. She'd just had her first child and was loving her job. That was 16 years ago. Julia now has two children. She's currently a senior research scientist at the Francis Crick Institute in London. And she has had to adapt her career to fit around not only the diabetes, but also lupus, which is a remitting condition affecting joints and causing extreme fatigue. David spoke to her initially to find out more about the impact that the diagnosis of these diseases have had on her career in science. Oh, gosh. Well, a new infant who didn't sleep and this at the same time and my diabetes turned out to be incredibly sensitive so I was having lots of hypos so I picked up the hoover I would collapse on the floor it was worrying I think at the time it was almost just get on with it don't think about it because you have to get through the day-to-day process but I found it also you know quite difficult what my colleagues think how did they receive the news what sort of comments did you get mostly people were positive and supportive And I think the intent was probably always to be like that. But, of course, there were comments that didn't feel like that. For example, one manager I remember saying at the time, oh, my gosh, this happened to a girl down our street and I thought you had such a brilliant career ahead of you. To sort of, like, put those in the same sentence, you can imagine I was, ah! But in the end, I don't think that manager treated me anyway. I think it was just expressing a fear. But, of course, it did produce anxiety in me, as you can imagine. Yes. And what practical adjustments did you make in in terms of your working pattern? In around 2000, I started treating my diabetes with an insulin pump because it was very brittle. And this was quite new at the time. And there was a problem with an insulin pump and NMR magnets at the time they couldn't be close together mm. in fact we now know that it can affect an insulin pump and make the pump give you an overdose of insulin so not a sensible thing to be doing obviously that was a, a trade-off I'd already decided I was going to go much more into sort of like data-driven work because if you did have to have time off the data was still there 
whereas sort of practical protein chemistry, you'd have to stay or something. And then the company I was working for at the time took this brilliantly. I got an opportunity to completely retrain as a protein crystallographer. In fact, that was the same manager, so incredibly supportive. Basically said, look, here's a year, go away and get retrained. I'd just had my second child <laughs> at this point. So that was a lot to take on, but I just thought it was just far too good an opportunity to turn down, and, and, and that was brilliant. Sounds like there's been some sympathetic colleagues and, and managers along the way, but what advice would you give to somebody that probably hasn't been as fortunate as you and might have had to deal, like you, with hurtful comments and uh, unhelpful comments and sort of ill-informed comments? I think for me, occupational health were really, really helpful. I didn't know anything about disability in the workplace, for example. Through discussions with occupational health, I began to realise that if you are having hospital appointments where I take along papers and read, you know, the NHS, you, you go when you're told, basically, that isn't a business doing you a favour. It's a reasonable adjustment. And there's lots of other things like that. You could consider, actually, the career change was a huge reasonable adjustment, but we hadn't phrased it in that language. I think if I'd understood that and had those open conversations, probably with a third party about these are the things that are difficult and and taken the advice of people that had been there before or they had dealt with lots of individuals like that then I think that would have been helpful. So you you took a period of um, you took a career break effectively and I think at the time you you described that as you know maybe a period of early retirement that must have been a real feel for you at the time that your career might have you know come to an end because of the illnesses you had. Well it felt like that I was off work sick for quite some time and there were discussions about whether I should take ill health retirement and I was fortunate I had a consultant who said no no we'll go for it. So I got back to work But there was a decision that really I couldn't still work in the lab. So I moved to a desk job for a couple of years that was almost essentially away from science. Mm. You know, you do find that you've never lost that first love in a way. I, I, you know, I have two children. Sort of my scientific job is almost my third. Mm. So, and then I was fortunate enough to get this Daphne Jackson fellowship to phase in at the Crick to get back up to speed with some of my expertise in NMR crystallography, but to learn something new. And I'm working in electron microscopy, cryo-EM, which is a very big thing in protein structure now, so it's all very exciting, all very lovely place. But I am back to square one, so it is a sort of feeling of putting the past behind you and enjoying what you can do and seeing where you can go from there. The other thing I, I, I know that you're doing now, um, Julia, at the Crick, is you, you want to set up a network for people with chronic illnesses. So tell us about that. Well, I noticed, you know, just scanning the web and talking to people, that other organisations had called staff disability networks with the idea of, you know, some sort of like mentoring or, you know, information service or a, a support network that was outside the formal HR, occupational health, or management, and even where managers can go along to chat. Turns out the number of people that want to subscribe to such a network are quite small. And for me, networking in other organisations, UCL, Imperial, Welcome, and GSK, in fact, you find sort of similar descriptions of their networks that it doesn't represent the number of people that you might think might want to join so I'm looking to possibly join up with these 
disguise so that we can pull resources and ideas about how we support people. What's in it for employers, having a network within your organisation or your institution? I'm hoping we can be a resource where if managers don't understand a condition, they can come along and we can go and find out for them or we can find the right person. And people can have much more informal discussions if things are going wrong. And actually just sometimes it's almost just offloading to people. As soon as you tell someone at work that you have this, someone will go, oh, I have this and da 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 And, oh, it was so good to talk to you. So... I think it's making for a healthier, more tolerant, understanding organisation is always going to be good for creativity. Thank you, Colin Dietrich and Julia Hubbard, for sharing your stories with us. You can read more about Julia's story and about the story of many other wonderful scientists who have been working and battling a chronic illness in the careers feature When Sickness Interrupts Science. And this was published in January this year. Now, instead of an Ask the Expert question, we've got Jack Leeming, our wonderful Nature Jobs editor, back in the studio. Hi, Jack. Hello. So what have you got for us this time? Sure. We recently published the China Career Guide 2018. It's a 20-page big old supplement aimed at providing our audience with a a whole selection of different pieces of information about, about China as a career destination. China's changing an awful lot when it comes to um, scientific recruitment and the world of science. So, yeah, the country has has become the world's most prolific publisher of scientific articles. You can find out more about on nature.com slash news. And generally is, as I say, becoming the destination to study in terms of scientific recruitment and, and somewhere that more and more scientists are considering uh, when it comes to their career moves. It's investing an enormous amount of money into its science technology sector as a way to diversify its economy and move away from low-cost manufacturing and it's generally it's succeeding. Science is really growing in this country and more and more people are considering it. So we thought it was a perfect time to produce something as a, as a resource to our audience, as a resource to nature readers and, and work out whether or not they feel China would be a good fit for them and their career. Thanks, Jack. And as he said, you can have a look at the China Career Guide online at nature.com. Right. Even though we didn't have an Ask the Expert section in this podcast, it doesn't mean we don't want to hear your questions. Send them in to naturejobseditor at nature.com and we will do our best to find a careers expert to answer them for you. Next month's podcast is going to be a little bit different. I'm heading to Reykjavik for a conference organised by Orpheus, which is a network of higher education institutions that is committed to developing and disseminating best practice within PhD training programmes. I can't give you a preview because I haven't been yet, but hopefully it'll be an interesting and insightful experience that I can share with you all. In the meantime, don't forget to check out all our adventures on the Nature Jobs blog at blogs.nature.com forward slash Nature Jobs, on Twitter at Nature Jobs and on Facebook. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.